0: Hey everybody welcome to shitty Re- book reports where the reports are shitty but the books are not I'm Trevor I'm here with my friend Mark how you feeling Mark I feel like this whoa is that <laughs> what is it that? that? that's from uh it's definitely from a video game It's like getting an
1: item or something from a video game no it's, it's the turning on a game boy so I feel like Ooh. kind of feel like a game boy with some fresh batteries today I'm, I was sick and I'm kind of getting over it feeling uh, like charged. Yeah, how you feeling?
0: I feel all right. I feel like an athlete after a long race. So basically, I was like you said, like you were sick. Now you're rejuvenated. I was I was working in Vegas and I was carrying around like a lot of cameras and stuff, and it was like absolutely grueling, like dead arms, dead legs at the end of the day. But now it's like, you know, feel like I'm stretched out. Done. Yeah. Done. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this week we're I think we're returning to a classic game, but uh, Mark can kick it off.
1: Yeah, I thought we could play another round of that uh, game we introduced. Uh, I don't know, dozens of episodes ago. First in, last out.
0: Yes, but, first uh, in, maybe last
1: out. We could go head to head this time, and so as like a reminder, I guess or a refresher. This is a little game that we came up with where we read the first sentence and then the last sentence of any kind of random novel that we have on our shelves to see if it makes any sense at all, you know, see Mm -hmm. what you're left with. And and I think we blew some,
0: we blew some minds on Twitter in the, in the writing community and, and just some of our fans on Twitter where it's like, if you start to think of a book this way, some of them are very concise and hit it out of the park. And some of them it's like a complete dud.
1: Yeah. You gotta, you know, sometimes it's not possible to fill in the, the blank. Right, uh, based on you know the first and the last, but it's uh it's novels condensed to fortune cookie <coughs> size, right, two sentences so, so you've brought uh you said you brought three books today I, I think I got five i got okay. a couple bonus ones here. let me kick it off all right, I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbor that I shall be troubled with, last sentence. I lingered round them under the benign sky, watched the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells, listening to the soft wind breathing through the grass, and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth.
0: I feel like yeah, the first the first sentence sounds like crime and punishment, but the second sentence does not, like at all. Like, crime and punishment is about him murdering his landlord, but I don't know if the second sentence is Dostoevsky is a crime and punishment
1: no um I'll give you some more hints there's a connection to progressive rock in that second sentence there
0: yeah that unquiet earth is like that's a Genesis song right
1: there's two songs yeah um, unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth remember the album that that was on
0: no no you're better with
1: song names than I am <laughs> I got an audio, another audio hint here. <laughs> Dude, what? I don't even. I don't even. I don't even know those too, vocals. Right. What is that? You too many clues. Too many clues. But this is uh, Wuthering Heights. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Emily Brontë. So right. you got the uh, Kate Bush song, Wuthering Heights, and mm-hmm. then uh, Genesis on the Wind and Wuthering album. Then and had moment. two okay, songs, yeah. "Unquiet Slumbers" for the sleepers. Nice. But if we're just talking about it as you know, first and last sentence, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I don't. That's all right.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's like I thought it was Crying and Punishment," but then I was like, is Dostoevsky really that direct? Like he goes straight to the landlord.
1: Yeah, you hear about the landlord, <laughs> and it'll be trouble. And then he's like, uh, you know, just looking at nothing. <laughs> At the end, after
0: <laughs> well, he does that too in Crime and Punishment. He like yeah. kind of wanders around the city and is just like, I'm a fuck up.
1: You know, the timeline's kind of close too, but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, Wuthering Heights, Wuthering Heights which I have not read, me neither. Right? It's one of those ones that you're supposed to read in school a lot. Um, we didn't get to it. I have it, well, maybe
0: it'll it, be as good as Madame Bovary, yeah. Uh, okay, I'll do my first one. So my first book, first sentence, if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap, but I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. And the last sentence is, if you do, you start missing everybody. And the context of that second to last sentence, don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. That,
1: that works as far as like connecting the two.
0: Yeah. Like this. It was like I asked a question. Yeah. yeah, Like David Copperfield kind of like childhood bullshit. And then he's like, don't trust anyone. Damn. It is a very succinct book. It gets, you know, it's a, it's a legend.
1: Ah, shit. (laughs)
0: think about this somebody just des- somebody de- describing their childhood in maybe a less than enthusiastic
1: way. Oh man, you got another hint.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not feeling sharp right now. Maybe this character is <laughs> this main character is classically everyone like does not like him. Ah. Oh. This is I'm calling it quits on you. Uh, th- this, is, uh, this is Holden Caulfield. <laughs> this is Holden Caulfield. It's catcher in oh, the rye. Okay, nice. Yeah. Everyone hates Holden, but they don't know what the hell they're talking about because catcher in the rye rules. But <laughs> I got it. So. at The last second.
1: Yeah, that that totally works. Though I'm, I'm I feel like Challenger was considering that, and I don't know.
0: Maybe maybe not considering it, but I think it it always first in last out always shows off the prowess of people who of authors that are like getting straight to the point you know they're not like
1: meandering meandering around consistent tone for sure in that book all right this this next one uh my second book is going to be tough to read because it's (laughs) spelled (laughs) phonetically all right the sweat was lashing off a sick boy he was trembling okay this thought both terrified and excited him as he contemplated life in Amsterdam. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I know that, like, I feel like
0: the only author that I know that writes so phonetically is like, a, is like Faulkner or something. Um, but contemplating life in Amsterdam.
1: Hmm. This was also a movie. Let me let me let me bust it out to two sentences. Okay. The sweat was lashing off a sick boy. He was trembling. I was just sitting there, focusing on the telly, trying to notice... Th- I'm not saying that. <laughs> 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 didn't I didn't see that. Uh, now, free from all them, for good, he could be what he wanted to be. He'd stand or fall alone. This thought both terrified and excited him as he contemplated life in Amsterdam. Hmm.
0: Maybe it's an English novel, because you said telly. Like, they said... Like, that's what they call a television telly. Um... Uh, adjacent. Ooh, adjacent to England. Ireland? <laughs> Scotland? Um, Scotland? Scotland. Scotland. Uh, life. Contemplating life in Amsterdam. Weird. No idea. I give up.
1: All right. This is Train Spotting by Irvine Welch. Oh, Train Spotting, yes. Sorry. Very
0: famous movie.
1: And if you want to go. Open the book if you want to see the uh, the word that I did not say. <laughs> Second sentence.
0: Second sentence.
1: All right. Um, what do you got? Second here's, book. My, here's my next book.
0: I actually, I, this is one that I looked at beforehand that works really well together, like mysteriously really well. But maybe I'll expand it out to nice. two sentences. This may be hard to believe coming from a black man, but I've never stolen anything. And last sentence. I never will. <laughs> uh, if I expand it out to two sentences, this may be hard to believe coming from a black man, but I've never stolen anything, never cheated on my taxes or at cards. And the last two sentences are, and he's right. I never will.
1: I mean, it sounds like Beatty. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, it's Beatty. Yeah. It's the sellout. Is but, it
1: a different book? Fo- oh God.
0: No, it's the sellout. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Beatty's the man. He's definitely right to the point always. So, um that makes sense, but I I guarantee he doesn't contemplate first in, last out, but it's a different context. He's been, when he says I never will, he's talking about how he'll never understand his father um or that his like he'll never understand uh you know, the world or whatever, but then it kind of connects perfectly with that first sentence and i always love that that first the first sentence of the sellout the first everything about the sellout just draws you in completely um so yeah baby
1: forever nice i can't remember if you read that in that episode if you started from the beginning i think you read an and some part from the middle instead
0: i might have started from the beginning because the beginning is really emblematic of the whole book like it's this it's uh you know obviously this black man who's he's on trial in front of the supreme court for he tries to have a slave and then he he lights up like a fat joint like in the middle of the proceedings (laughs) very uh uh, ultra real but anyway yeah yeah, baby the sellout what's your next one
1: all right this next, next one's gonna be difficult um i grabbed one of the uh philosophy books that i have have but haven't read
0: (laughs) well okay
1: so let's try let's try this so i i narrowed it down a little bit in the start what is a rebel the bow bends the wood complains at the moment of supreme tension there will leap into flight an unswerving arrow a shaft that is inflexible and free
0: wow sounds a lot more novelistic than Than trying to, you know, get into philosophy. But I guess that's the way that they are. What's the first sentence?
1: What is a rebel? Question mark. Interesting. And uh, if you were super familiar with this, that would give it away.
0: The only thing I'm, the only philosophy I'm super familiar with is like Descartes. Um, And I wouldn't know the first sentence.
1: (laughs) If you listed off top 10 philosophers that you knew, you'd probably land on this one.
0: No, I still, I have no idea. I have no idea.
1: So this is The Rebel by Albert Camus.
0: Ah, Camus. Kind of a bit, like, I don't know. Is he like a philosopher? He's like a philosopher novelist in some yeah.
1: ways. I think he straddles that line. Uh,
0: he did, the His most famous thing is The Stranger, right? The Stranger, yeah. Yeah.
1: The stranger the plague, is good. The fall,
0: the plague. I myth. thought dragged a little bit. I remember reading the plague and being like, "Okay."
1: And the myth of Sisyphus, of course. Yeah. no Nobel, Nobel Prize for literature, so. Really. Yeah, I'm checking out the back of this book here. Oh
0: my god! Nobel Prize for literature. Well. Then I guess we have to love him.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: All, All right. right. Here's here's my next book. First sentence. Lo, Julian, number, late a flying cadet, umpteenth squadron air service known as one wing by the other embryonic aces of his flight. Wait, Regarded... can you start over? Yep.
1: Yeah. And uh, here... cut out when you started talking.
0: All right, so here's my first sentence. Lo, Julian, number, late a flying cadet, umpteenth squadron, air service known as one wing by the other embryonic aces of his flight regarded the world with a yellow and disgruntled eye. And the last sentence is... Buh, 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 buh. Then the singing died, fading away along the mooned moon land, inevitable with tomorrow and sweat, with sex and death and damnation, and they turned townward under the moon, feeling dust in their shoes.
1: That beginning sounds so much like uh, "Against the Day" by Pynchon.
0: Mm. No, I, I it's not against it. it's not against the day, but yeah, you're right. Like the Air Service Squadron
1: and yeah. that whole thing, yeah. And I've tried. I've started that book like three or four times and just read like the first five pages.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting comparison to, to be sure. I actually really love I I never finished against the day either. I'm guilty of that and I'll probably have to start from the beginning, but I did go a little bit farther and I actually really love it. I see I see how people like get mad at it for falling apart and being a little even more disorganized than Benchin normally is, but some parts of it are really really freaking good. So what is this book? You got another Gun, clue? Yep. Uh not really, other than maybe I should have read uh, the first sentence in a southern accent. Hmm. <laughs> Lo, Julian, number, late a flying cadet. <laughs>
1: Is this a- Absalom? Absalom? No,
0: it's you no, know, but you got the author right. Uh, It's not Light in August. No. Um, It's probably one that you've never read. It's an early one. I- So this is, yeah, this is Faulkner and the book Soldiers Pay. Soldiers Pay, which has an ironic title because this is apparently, um, this is apparently a book that Faulkner felt one of the only books that he wrote, like purely for, to like, for money to cash in. So it's called Soldiers Pay, which is like kind of ironic. But I bet you there's a, I actually never read this book, but I bet you that's a load of bullshit because Faulkner was probably like, oh, you know, it's one of my most commercial works, but that probably means it's like more clear than others, but just as good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because Faulkner, I don't think Faulkner can really like shed his talent.
1: <laughs> so I'm yeah, sure it's I'm sure very it's, good. Uh, nice. I was going to ask you what it was about, but I have no idea. Yeah, Maybe we'll see. Soldiers
0: probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep, so the, that's the last of my three, you have a few more. All right.
1: I'll, I'll give you a couple ones, yeah. This one should be good. I can't hear a thing. Okay. <laughs> last sentence. <laughs> a nation chokes on its cornflakes, then digs out its 80s slash 90s party party gear.
0: Whoa. The first sentence I thought it was going to be Johnny got his gun, and I was like, nope. <laughs> 80s, 90s party gear? (laughs) I don't know, infinite jest or something?
1: (laughs) I can't hear a thing, much as I try to shake free the blockage. My right ear is unyielding. I attempt a little rummage with a cotton swab. I know this is never advised. The eardrum is sensitive, especially if it's been subjected to a lifetime of drumming.
0: Ooh, a lifetime of drumming?
1: No, I have no idea. A nation chokes on its cornflakes and digs out its eighties, nineties party gear. <laughs>
0: sounds like sounds like uh, Phil Collins' autobiography or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you 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 laugh, but that's exactly right. It's uh Is it? Not yeah, not dead yet, the memoir by uh Phil Collins from a few years what? ago. What? I, I just guessed that? <laughs> that was a fucking they joke. <laughs> Lifetime of drumming, dude.
0: <laughs> lifetime of drumming yeah well i know he's losing his hearing it's a good nice. book he's got a
1: lot of stories uh well, he was, uh sure. had a lot of marital strife and oh all really stuff like that and he was an alcoholic for a while but right uh really interesting life wow interesting can't
0: believe i guessed that that's like really real. <laughs> nice i was like whatever bro sounds like phil collins <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right next one in the days when the spinning wheels hummed busily in the farmhouses, and even great ladies, clothed in silk and thread lace, had their toy spinning wheels of polished oak, there might be seen in districts far away among the lanes, or deep in the bosom of the hills, certain pallid undersized men who, by the side of the brawny country folk, looked like the remnants of a disinherited race. Really long first sentence there. Wow. But very interesting first sentence. Nice and descriptive, yeah. Oh, father, said Eppie, what a pretty home ours is. I think nobody could be happier than we are. So that's uh, not really connected at all. Yeah, what? It's like there's like a
0: (laughs) subterranean race of white men. (laughs) And then then like, yay, daddy.
1: Um, (laughs) Jeez. I don't know if this is one is going to work. But it's a... um, I'll say it's not Middlemarch. It's the other one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who wrote Middlemarch?
1: George Eliot. George Eliot, the other one. Okay, so what is, is it? This is Silas Marner. Okay. Um, I just picked a book at random. You've never Someone read it? Out there is going to know about it. No. No.
0: Huh.
1: I'm running out of ones that I either want to... <laughs> I don't want to bring one that I want to cover on the show. Okay. Uh, and here's the last one. This one I looked through. And, um, it was not going to work for this game, so I'll just do it anyways. I name you three metamorphoses of the spirit, how the spirit shall become a camel, and the camel a lion, and the lion at last a child. Hmm. (laughs) And here we go. Thus spoke Zarathustra, and left his cave, glowing and strong like the morning sun emerging from behind dark mountains.
0: Um... Perhaps the Nietzsche book, (laughs) Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Okay, so I can see why that book didn't work, because the title is in the last sentence.
1: (laughs) It doesn't work as far as guessing it, but it's a good... uh,
0: Yeah, it's a good first and last. It's a good first and last, but yeah, it's, uh, you know. Thus spake Zarathustra by Nietzsche. But that's also cool. Like, that's cool that he did it in the last sentence. I wonder if it's anywhere else in the book. Because that's a pretty good,
1: like, mic drop. You know, like, this, like the title is the last sentence. Yeah. And it's just like, boom. <laughs> Unless it's the beginning of every paragraph. <laughs> like, yeah. he said this, he said this. <laughs> Thus spake everyone. Um, cool. So, yeah. Another
0: game of uh, First In, Last Out. You can... Uh, hashtag us on twitter with sbr first last and that was like one of our like better twitter threads though so we'll yeah, probably keep it alive
1: get people uh bust out your favorite novel see how it works or uh your own novel you know one that you're working right. on see how, see how it works for that
0: right yeah we i think we got a lot of uh writers minds going with like holy crap how do i begin and end <laughs> yeah <laughs> they better be related i better be awesome like jd sounder <laughs> All right. Um my book this week actually comes to me from so this is a writer that is in some ways like related to Proust in the sense that they existed around the same time and that I definitely became more interested in his work once I realized his, the the kind of like autobiographical entanglement between Proust and my author that i'm covering this week but um i guess i'll i'll try to frame it mark style by starting with a question and say what is a book that you've appreciated for its psychoanalysis
1: hmm uh let's think about that for a second
0: for its psychoanalysis or also maybe it's realism, because this author was known for both of those things.
1: Uh psychoanalysis the one that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head is just uh uh Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Which I mean I liked it. It wasn't it, it wasn't incredible like like what I heard, but um I did like how it kind of
0: but an accurate... like
1: Motivation and stuff yeah, like that. An yeah.
0: accurate framing of the human mind kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I, I liked it in, in that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Realism, and, though, I don't know.
0: Let me also ask you, are you familiar with the short-term, very short um, kind of trope or common sentence in French, Jacuse. Yes. <laughs> do you know? Do you know that? And why yeah. do
1: you know it? Why do you know jacques? Because it's in, uh, it's in a million TV shows, and that's the only reason. <laughs> a, real, a million TV shows, J'acuse. a million books.
0: Jacques, which of course means I accuse, or like like accusing someone, or like yeah. jacques. So, let me explain the origin of jacques if you do not oh. know it, and
1: you so you don't know it. The origin uh, isn't. Uh, um, <laughs> Freaking Carlton Banks or whatever, Carlton. yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, Carlton Banks and The Simpsons like or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's been in The Simpsons. Uh, no, the origin and one of the most one of the reasons why my author this month, I mean this week, is um, very fa- famous is because the original article published uh, in a French newspaper was the headline Jacques which is was written by Emile Zola. And I am covering his novel, the the Beast Within. Also, maybe can be translated as the Human Animal. Uh, in French, it is La Bête Humaine by Émile Zola, mm. from 1890. Uh, so let me jump into the author's life a little bit. Like I said, I became more intensely. I actually read. Zola before I ever read any Proust because in in college I had to read his book *Germinal*, which is a really really good book, um, and a lot of his writing is is rather excellent. But he was you know a late nineteenth century writer as you as you as everyone was in Paris, <laughs> and um, he is. A French novelist, playwright, journalist, and the best known practitioner of the literary school of naturalism, uh, which is, and he was an important contributor to the development of. Theatrical naturalism. I'm sure you can tell that I'm reading from Wikipedia right now, but he also uh-huh. becomes a major political figure because he he was famous during his lifetime for his writing and several of his books, you know, basically a lot of his books kind of increased in fame to the point where on the 13th of January in 1898, he wrote the famous headline of "On La Aurora, newspaper, which was Jacques. And it was an open letter. It was an open letter to, and this is kind of fascinating within the context of his work. I promise that this story is worth telling, but, um, I basically researched this and, napoleon III, who was the nephew of napoleon bonaparte he basically there's the thing there's a the thing in french history called the second empire and basically napoleon's nephew was like yo everyone's down with democracy like this is dope and then he gets elected democratically and then just kind of rewrites the constitution and has a coup d'etat where, where he's like yeah i'm to- I totally got elected by the way i'm also the emperor again <laughs> so it's called like Freaking
1: this it, nepotism.
0: Yeah, it's called like the French Second Republic, or the Fr- or he he got elected as the in the republic and then changed it to the Second Empire, and nice. that goes into a lot of the context behind Proust because Proust is writing his own in a weird way autobiography of himself growing up in the Second Empire, but as we know about Proust, so, he, so
1: this was. Uh, early 20th century
0: yeah yeah roughly, it, it, okay. it, it was like there was a lot of stuff that was in the like early 20th century the it was like dying like the second empire was dying
1: or, i have to say something stupid really quick mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a deep cut okay uh, <laughs> you keep i keep hearing Jacques and it's just making me think of the real world san diego and uh jacuz.
0: Jacques. Man, <laughs> oh, nice. Can't get rid of that association. <laughs> Deep cut. Yes, Jacques. <laughs> yeah. Real World totally San Diego. We'll know. Me and Mark's favorite edition of the real world. If any of you guys are real world heads out there, shout out to Frankie. Rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'll oh, actually now, that. That, no, that gave me time to click on the second French Empire. Nice. And actually, it lasts Good from 1852 that. to 1870. So it is a brief period in history. It's not exactly the, the beginning of the 20th century. But yeah, so. Basically, this stuff's going on, and it kicks off a lot of inspiration for a lot of people. Um, But what's interesting about it is that Proust starts to write his semi-autobiographical series of novels that is basically about someone growing up in that era and the end of the aristocracy of which Proust's family was a part of, kind of in this slow decay. And the thing that Zola becomes famous for and his books increasingly, increasingly become more famous Uh, And I'm not even going to be able to say the cycle of novels. It's not like it's named after the two families that he writes about. But Les Rojean Macquart is a series of literally 20 novels. And it's the history of these two families, one that is well to do and they're sort of not as well to do cousins and brethren so it's like they're part of the same family part of the same blood but one is on the right like the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing yeah and uh he writes 20 books and they're court they're sort of like loosely based off of each other so like i originally read germinal which is about uh the horrible conditions of like mining, you know, back like in the day when they were just like in the dark, like bringing horses down into mines and it was like completely terrifying. Yeah. Um, and then this book, the uh, La Bête Humaine, is kind of around like train tracks and trains and stuff like that. But the only connection that the two books like have to each other is like, oh, that one character in this is like that guy's cousin. You know, so he's like he's kind of loosely being like, oh, yeah, it's part of my series. But they like all the lives kind of branch out in different directions. Um, It would be sort of hard to fully summarize the plot of uh, the beast within or the or the human animal. But basically, the reason why I asked about psychoanalysis is because um, I think at this point in in the history of novel writing, like in the late Uh, 1800s people are starting to really a lot of authors are really starting to get down that like psychological element and what zola is doing with this novel in particular is he is almost taking that angle of like how people are perversely interested in the idea that someone can have a motivation to kill Mm -hmm. so um Labette Hubain is uh, concerned with like the main character kind of has these flashes of murderous desire. So basically, like when he interacts with women, the main character's name is Lantier, Lantier, and he is the human beast that basically he has. He's a train driver. He's like a train engineer and driver. And the whole thing is sort of like a psychological thriller, which it's kind of interesting now to see it as like this guy was definitely concerned with realism and stuff like that. Because when you read it now, it's like there's been people who are like a lot more real in a way like this is like a thriller drama about like how Lantier like starts sleeping with one of his colleagues wives and then like all hell breaks loose and like she and her husband like kill another guy and then he's like not going to tell about how they killed that guy but then later on like he kills like another woman you know like it's very sort of like yeah. is this realistic like was and it i really remember controversial it wasn't really con- i don't think it was like super controversial because he was like famous at the time but what yeah. i do remember about this book was it takes a lot of Tristan turns and then like some of the things like some of Lantier's thoughts are like really well thought out precisely and psychologically and then other major events just sort of pass by with being with being like oh yeah he died and then you're like <laughs> what <laughs> like just like moving moving the story along um but overall it was like it's like a it's it, it was interesting to read because in the in that whole context of like okay i'm going to read this like serious french writer like zola Jacques, Hughes, like political intrigue psychological like deep you know whatever and then in some ways this book was like that but then it was also almost like a pulp fiction like sort of like novel where it was like exciting so it was like love and betrayal and like this guy hates this guy and he's gonna like he thinks about killing her for the inheritance and they're trying to set up all this stuff so it was like sort of interesting combination and Especially since he has so much renown. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that uh, who won the Nobel Prize that we were talking about before? Camus. Camus. So Zola was oh, nominated. Right? Yeah, I don't think Zola ever won, but he was nominated for the first and second Nobel Prize ever. <laughs> so in 1901 yeah. and 1902, <laughs> they were like, this guy is good. So he was nominated for the first two, which is even a pretty pretty amazing distinction. Um, but I also want to go a deep, dip a little bit back into Zola's biography because he also happens to be one of those people that it just seems like He um, is sort of in the middle of things, like in a really cool way, just like how I always say, like Joan Didion is in the middle of things in a really cool way. So Zola was, you know, born to an Italian engineer who was Venetian and his mother um, was French. And eventually his father um, passes away or, yeah, his father passes away and then they move into Paris. So they're sort of poor in Paris. But who comes along to live with them but his mom's friend, Paul Cezanne? (laughs) So the famous painter Paul Cezanne was like his homie from like early days. Um, And like one of his mom's like best friends, you know, so there are portraits that Cezanne made of... Emil zola and you know there's also you know zola depicts him in a novel which then later becomes a row between the two of them but it's just sort of like an interesting little biographical thing like yeah he totally just knew Cezanne it was totally fine uh <laughs> but he also knew he he knew if he didn't know proust like super personally they also knew of each other and it was also because of um i should talk about the reason behind the Jacus jacuz Uh, headline which was have you ever heard anything ever about the Dreyfus case no so the Dreyfus case or the Dreyfus affair was when a French uh artillery off officer who was jewish he was kind of like thrown under the bus for political intrigue because there was there was almost like kind of like a like a whistleblowing scenario like in the french government and then they were like it's this dude alfred dreyfus he's like a piece of shit we're gonna put him in prison forever and then more details start to come out about maybe it was actually this other like genteel guy like basically like a non-jewish guy but they were keeping Yeah, they were keeping Alfred down, basically just being like he did it because he's a Jew. And that's what Jacques Huse is. Basically, Zola comes out and says, no, I accuse you of racism. You know, like this is yeah. like, here's the evidence of all the things that are like are coming out about this case. And you just want the case to be over and to be swept under the rug and to keep this guy in jail forever. And eventually when a new leader um, or like a new president, this is after the fall of all that Napoleon bullshit but after when a new president is elected dreyfus gets exonerated and what's interesting about that is you know first and foremost i would say it's just interesting because we think that we're always living in the most uh enlightened of times and that everything has happened for the first time but to me that sounds like something that would be happening you know today or in the 30s or in the 40s or in the 60s um so this was all happening in 1898 but um but the also just the fascinating thing about it is that there actually there's other pages in Proust that reference the Dreyfus case like this was like a big deal in Paris and stuff like that. So there's headlines mentioned throughout Proust novels that have to do with the Dreyfus case. And then obviously Zola writes about it. So, you know, he he came down with a heavy hand and became mega, mega famous because he was also. famous writer but i would say you know reading zola i would say you know just pick up from anywhere don't be too intimidated by the idea like oh he wrote 20 novels so i have to start from the first one or whatever because that is intimidating (laughs) yeah i mean like i would i wouldn't stay like too connected to that whole idea just because like you know i read germinal and i don't really know i think that's like the 15th one or something like that. And then like Labette humane is like the 17th one or whatever. Like I didn't really feel like, Oh, I don't, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't know what happened before. Sure. They're all very loosely connected. He was just a famous author who was, who was, you know, cashing in a bit, but also just, just a really good thinker and overall somebody who it's cool to know, you know, him, in French history. Like if you ever know someone who's natively French, they're probably going to know
1: who Zola is. So, um, so now I famous. feel bad because <laughs> my family's French and I, I have not heard of him. So I need to, uh,
0: well, I'm talking about, you know, like if you went through the Paris <laughs> school system, not exactly like,
1: you know, yeah.
0: I'm French, uh, you know, in the diaspora or whatever. But, um, So my one-star review comes from Nancy. I like how I find one-star reviews that I would never give one star, but I do agree with them. So uh, Nancy gives one-star review on Goodreads of Love That Humane. She says, great writing is always from Zola, but a little over the top. Literary realism? I think not, (laughs) which is uh, my – I agree. I mean, like it's sort of funny now that it's like, yeah, this guy was – little. I think they kind of took the term literary realism to mean that they weren't like Talking about kings and queens and dukes and lords and ladies and stuff like that, that they were more writing, writing about everyday people. But not everything in this book is believable. There's like four murder mysteries wrapped all into one and like three (laughs) and three like things of adultery. But hey, who knows? I mean, times were different. We're not living in the 1890s. We're living in 2000s.
1: So, you know, before forensics. Yeah, I oh
0: no yeah, problem. exactly. I mean, you think about all that all the time when you're reading true crime and stuff and it's like, yeah, I mean, before forensics, everything and everything anything anyone, and everything, was Did anyone on. see you? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. Um Probably and good. I I guess even though I gave my one star review already, I'll I'll read two quick quotes and then I'll be completely yeah, done. Do Just to up. give you a flavor of Zola. He's he's got some good writing. So, um as I said before, um, the main character has these sort of beastly desires to uh, murder, especially women. So uh, these are some quotes from Zola, kind of investigating that human psychology. So, As if one killed by calculation, a person kills only from an impulse that springs from his blood, his blood and sinews, from the vestiges of ancient struggles, from the need to live and the joy of being strong. The second quote would be with other women, he had not been able to touch their flesh without experiencing the desire to devour it as though ravenous with an abominable hunger to butcher them. But this one, could he then love her and not kill her? So uh, some pretty dark stuff from Zola, but that's kind of what he was known for of deeping, diving into these kind of deep psychologies and trying to figure out. He was also like a big person who was, trying to, through stories, trying to figure out nature versus nurture. So a lot of the whole, like, 20 novel saga is about, you know, these the, these people in La Bête Humane are on the other side of the tracks where they're not, like, as well taken care of, whereas, like, the other people in their exact bloodline have different influences that bring them into different types of decisions. So that was, like, his whole thing, like, nature versus nurture and and what. What effects does your environment have on you? Yeah. Yeah, Zola. Check him out. J'accuse.
1: J'accuse. Wait, I think I got Dr. Zoidberg from Futurama saying it right here. Uh (laughs) J'accuse.
0: Got it. There you go. Zola lives on in the hearts of many. One of many. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent.
1: All right, yeah. Nice. I got to check that out. So I'm gonna start my book report off by uh, talking to you a little bit about where you just were. So you you were just doing a job uh, in Las Vegas, right?
0: I was. I was in the hellish nightmare that is Las Vegas, Nevada.
1: <laughs> nice, because I was about to ask you how it was. Um, you that was you had been there before, right?
0: I have been to Vegas before, but yes, this was a this was my longest trip to Vegas, but. Also, I, you know, I say I was in hell, but it's basically because I was working on a convention where I was, and I'm not joking when I say this, I was in, I was completely inside for three days. So I did, I did not leave the building from convention center to hotel room for three solid days.
1: I feel like that is kind of a Vegas experience. though. like, that's why, like when I, when I read about like, uh, or hear about, you know, casino constructions like like the inside you're not supposed to have like a sight line to the outside mm-hmm. so you can't tell like what time of day it is and stuff, yep, you know, stuff yeah yeah
0: like yeah they're cool. very they they do do that on purpose they i also you know like going there for work and stuff i was also telling my like co-workers and everything like vegas is a lot of the casino floors can be intimidating because they're actually made for you to lose your way yeah. So it's like what, like you, you only truly know the outline of like where you're supposed to be going after like the third or fourth or maybe even fifth time you do it. But it can be embarrassing because you're like working, <laughs> you're working, right? And you're like, I have to get from point A to point B, but I got lost for like 10 minutes. <laughs>
1: um. So yeah, that's their fault. Yeah. They wanted that to happen, but they wanted that. Win. So yeah. yes, when you told me you were there, it was kind of a struggle for me to not tell you about the book I was reading this week. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. I see why. Um, yeah, I've never, I've, I've, I've never been there also, but, um, I would like to go someday, maybe catch like a golden Knights hockey game or something. They got a new team there.
0: Yes. They, um, and they're very into it, which is, yeah, I've, I've met many awesome. people who are
1: into hockey there, which is rare for the desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's their, uh, third season coming up. But, um, so yeah, the first thing I want to do this week is just, i you know, do some lazy shit and just read almost all of the entire Wikipedia entry for this author, because it's incredibly short, and it serves as a really interesting intro. Life and career. John O'Brien was born in Oxford, Ohio, where his parents, Bill and Judy O'Brien, were both students at Miami University. He was the brother of writer Aaron O'Brien. John grew up in Brecksville and Lakewood, Ohio, and graduated from Lakewood High School in 1978. He married Lisa Kirkwood in 1979, and the couple moved to Los Angeles, California in 1982. His first novel, Leaving Las Vegas, is dedicated to her. Through a friend of his ex-wife, O'Brien got a gig writing episode 37 of the animated series Rugrats. The episode titled Toys in the Attic, which premiered in 1993 under his only known pseudonym Carol Mine. According to his sister Erin, he was disgusted with editorial changes made to the script. (laughs) O'Brien committed suicide by shotgun at his Beverly Hills apartment on April 10th, 1994, two weeks after learning that his novel leaving Las Vegas was to be made into a movie. His father says that the novel was his suicide note. Wow. And that's pretty much the entire entry there. And hmm. isn't that, doesn't that throw you for a damn loop?
0: Yeah. He seems very opposed to commercialism.
1: Yeah. Um, um, but also, I'm, you know, Rugrats like how fucking random is that
0: (laughs) yeah it's really random
1: first off though my first question I guess have you seen this movie leaving Las Vegas
0: I don't think I have seen it
1: it's Nicolas Cage Elizabeth Shue
0: isn't it about yeah it's about alcoholism right
1: yes it's Uh, it's an incredibly depressing movie so I saw the movie before I read this book I watched mm -hmm. this movie maybe a year ago or something um and uh The book is different, but not that different. You know, it's just as brutal, uh, but like the order is just a bit off. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I'm going to talk about the book, but I I really want to focus a little bit on that Rugrats factoid. (laughs) Deep dive. (laughs) It's so random to me. Like, you know,
0: have you you, have you read like a synopsis of the episode or watched it? Yes,
1: I have it here that was um you know that was probably my favorite show as a kid it was like appointment television for me and um for people who don't know this is show from the early i mean i think like 1992 to like 2000 maybe Mm -hmm. uh it's just about babies really great
0: really great intro very good intro to that show
1: got a couple seconds of the theme song (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah, really weird music.
0: But so good. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. Isn't his dad like a, his Tommy's dad is like a weird inventor or something?
1: Yeah, yeah, stew pickles. Stew um <laughs> Tommy pickles. But uh yeah, one of my favorite shows, you know, I had a Chucky Finster shirt. I got photographic evidence of that. You know, I saw the movie in theaters for sure. You know, the, Oh yeah. Rugrats, Rugrats movie. movie. Yeah. yeah. Everyone saw that. Huge, huge fan. So, so anyways, this episode, uh, which first aired April 11th, 1993. And like, I don't remember it, but I, I, am certain that I've seen it. The, this guy's rolling around me. in
0: his grave that you started talking about leaving Las Vegas. And now we're talking yeah. about his, uh, <laughs> Rugrats episode, but it's too juicy. Not to, to ignore. Yeah.
1: So here's the, here's the plot. The Pickles leave Angelica and Tommy over at their grandparents' house while they go on vacation. While there, the babies discover the attic, which they first thought was haunted, is filled with boxes and boxes full of old, like, vintage-style toys.
0: Mm.
1: So all I know about this, I need to go back and watch the episode, but I'm just, I'm so, so curious about what the original script was and what changes were made to it, you know, what... Right. what pissed him off you know
0: right. i can't
1: i can't picture this guy knowing i've I've only read this book here um he's got a few other books that uh came out after his death but that his sister kind of um finished i guess but i just can't see him you know writing this family friendly like thing so I, I i gotta maybe do some research and see
0: we gotta contact nickelodeon and ask them to give us like the secret files yeah <laughs> it's interesting work. though it's interesting that you know he wanted that like amount of control and like like for something that you're using like a synonym for clearly for money like you're writing like a children's cartoon episode and he still has like this issue with like don't edit my Rugrats episode yeah you know you would think that he make- would just be like whatever give me money <laughs>
1: I don't know. I mean, I got, I got to know what kind of changes are made. They they took away the artistic integrity or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I'll, I'll actually talk about the book now. Uh, <laughs> so leaving, leaving Las Vegas, you know, it's essentially about prostitution and alcoholism, you know, two things that are very close to Vegas.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you
1: know, there's only two, there's only really two characters in this book that that are in focus. Uh, there's Sarah uh, who, you know, she's a sex worker. she, came to Las Vegas to get away from an abusive man, like an abusive kind of, uh, sort of boyfriend kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it's just not good. And then you've got Ben who was, you know, at one time a married man with like a career, uh, as a writer, but you know, he's, he only, it comes to a point where he only just cares about literally just drinking himself to death. Like, that's his only purpose. Hmm. And, you know, um, these characters, they find each other. And that's, like, that's what the story is all about. Like, they meet up. They happen upon each other in Vegas. Like, all their flaws on display. um, You know, in most stories, this would be, like, the redemption arc, the start of it, you know, where one's going to help the other one or they're going to help each other or, like, some sort of happily ever after you know love was able to stop the the hurt, but
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: that's that's just that's not what happens here, <laughs> and you know that's not the character's intentions either like it's not you know they're, they're it's very real in that sense where they're not exactly self interested but like they put this stuff in they put their life into motion, and it's like you know it's not gonna change like they they find each other and they kind of remain stoic in spite of seeing all these, like, you know, alarming things in in each other's lives, you know. Right. They're able to pretty much just enjoy each other's company despite, you know, knowing and accepting that, you know, Sarah's going to keep working and Ben's going to keep drinking. And that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to read a section here that sort of introduces Ben, who was played by Nicolas Cage in the film. And he uh, he actually did a, a really impressive acting job like um, he actually won the Oscar for best actor for this role of just being you know drunk the entire time yeah you know the the movie opens up on him like pushing a a grocery cart through a liquor store just filling it entirely with liquor bottles it's it's really insane but let me uh, let me read this section real quick On his way home, having stopped off at a liquor store for a can of beer to drive by, Ben feels elated. His day is in gear and he has everything to look forward to. He has a plan. Things will tick along fine now. He turns up the radio and thinks about what album to listen to while he gets dressed. Checking his pocket, though he already knows its contents, he confirms that he'll need to stop at the automated teller machine. Money, money. He's going through a ton of money these days. When he lost his job last week, he gained a sizable final check. His former employer employer really liked him and felt terribly guilty about having to fire him. Never mind that he unwittingly delayed the dismissal meeting by staying all morning at the bar and after checking in with the receptionist was on his way out for an early lunch when his boss caught up with him. Ironically, had he known what was in store for him that morning, he would have made it a point to be on time. He is very conscientious in that way. So they called him in. By then he did know what for and asked him to leave. He felt so bad Not that he was being fired, but because his boss was on the verge of tears. How could he blame them for the last year and a half his daily routine had been come in late, say 11, flirt with the receptionist, go to lunch early, 1130, return from lunch late, about 3, copy (laughs) must-do lists from today's calendar page to tomorrow's, walk fast around the office, leave early, no later than 430. Everyone knew it for almost as long as he did, and he knew that they knew. It all just flowed so nicely that no one wanted to fuck with it. Not that he didn't have his value, he did. He could be counted on to, at least, not let anything become a crisis, and he fixed everything that broke. The latter was not even required of him, but he could, so he did. He knew that being handy is the kind of conspicuous skill that makes it easier for others to tolerate you. They tolerated and even liked him for as long as they could. They eased their guilt by cutting him a padded check chock-full of make-believe vacation pay and sick leave, and iced to severance pay play. It was intended to help him get back on his feet while he looked for another job, but they knew, and he knew, that what it really represented was a whole fucking lot of booze. Money, money, his final paycheck added to what was left of his once substantial savings, giving him a net worth of around $5,000. On top of that, he can wring at least that much again out of his credit cards. He's always been a good boy, and it will be 60 to 90 days before little red flags start appearing next to his name on monitors and printouts from here to Arizona. Money, money, that gives him $10,000 in drinking money. If he stops paying his bills and only pays, say, one month's rent and keeps up his virtually non-existent social life and eating habits, then it can pretty much all stay drinking money. If he drinks $100 a day, and he can, he's got 100 days to drink. It's just an arithmetic operation. Simple logic. In his kitchen, he picks up the bottle of vodka. Center stage and the white tile counter and always threatening depletion, this is his home bottle. This is his sick bottle, his too-late bottle, his one-for-the-road bottle. This is his utility bottle. It keeps him at his default setting. He pours a tall glass and cuts it with a splash of tonic. It's quite a lot of vodka, and it represents his last hurdle of the morning. He feels all right now, but if he can get this down, he knows that he won't embarrass himself in public. Throwing up at your bar stool is frowned upon in Beverly Hills. He carries the full glass into the shower with him just to be on the safe side. All goes well, and by the end of the shower, he's feeling great. Craving music now, he drips over to the stereo without waiting to dry and plays one of the 20-some cuts that he tends to play over and over again when he's been drinking that he tends to play over and over again. He pours another drink and dances back into the bathroom for an ambitious morning shave. To Ben, shaving is evidence that everything's fine. These few minutes of socially suggested practicality tend to convince him that he— like the rest of the normal world, is just living his life. He's just another guy that gets up and goes through a regular routine, wades through a non-spectacular day, and comes home and goes to sleep. He's a cog in the machine. He's a Soma-driven Epsilon who happens to be plagued with imagination. For instance, his habit is to shave around his mouth first. That way he can sip his drink even if he's not finished shaving. The mind (laughs) never rests.
0: Wow. That was really good. It was really like interesting because I think that there's a lot of knowledge of substance abuse in there.
1: Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's considered his kind of note that he left and it's considered to be very, you know, biographical. So it's kind of his sort of view of himself on display. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a very uh, scary kind of lifestyle and I'll talk about it a little bit later how how it's portrayed in this book, which right. uh, you know makes it kind of unique for as far as recommending this book, you know. Um, but first, I want to um, read just a, another quick paragraph just concerning Sarah, and it kind of shows the main difference between the two. So, because you know Ben, his whole purpose becomes like he wants to die. He just wants to drink until he he dies, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, just a paragraph about Sarah. Sarah rolls over on her couch. A sentence, she thinks. It's like a fucking sentence. Mandatory vacation. The whole thing is irrational and new to her. Traditionally ignorant of the comfort of a real schedule, she's never before had to face the absence of one. For her, it is far too restrictive, too involuntary to enjoy. And she feels no longer in sync with her think. Television amounts only to a series of cruel plays about people with purpose. She even envies characters who are killed on screen or doomed to die during a commercial. If faced with her own imminent death, she could at least release the relentless anxiety of futility. A suicide, though, even one portrayed ineptly on a daytime drama, fills her with vexation, makes her feel alien to a species that can produce such options. Rejecting the contradiction, afraid of pursuing the logic, She has never pondered the line that runs between death and death at one's own hands. It is a non-question, irrelevant. It is one of those tricks of reasoning that can only be seen on an abstract level. For brought to terms with bread and water, it comes undone.
0: So her, she's almost like a little bit more lyrical. Yeah. Like, even when he's writing about her, because like when he was writing about what you can assume is autobiographical it kind of felt like more like straightforward whereas she's like living a little more in metaphor
1: yeah i think it's outside you know something that's outside of his experience versus you know what he feels is his experience mm-hmm. um and it's also kind of it's strange because the movie like i'll talk about a little bit of differences between the movie and the book but the movie you know focuses a lot more on on ben but the book you know you don't get to ben until 70 pages in i think you know it's about it's about sarah to start like um and yeah it's just a a little more interesting as far as him kind of uh you know but ben ben is like purpose driven but like the purpose is a a sad one and sarah's Mm -hmm. kind of just um uh kind of like a survivor kind of like able to, to deal with things in a different way. And uh, yeah, they're, they're very different people, but, uh, so, you know, it's, it's incredibly bleak story. And also I got to say, it's, it's very, very graphic, but it's also very engaging. Like like a lot of, a lot of bad stuff happens that would normally be, you know, a turning point or something, but (laughs) these are characters who feel that they have already escaped, you know, Las Vegas is where they escape too. And, you know, there's nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it might seem on the surface, like it could be labeled as like sort of a romance, but it's really almost more about friendship in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say like Sarah and Ben, they're both able to sort of stop acting around each other. Like they would, you know, trying to hold it together in public and, you know, they can show each other their scars and, you know, they're not trying to save each other like they would if maybe this was authored by someone else. Someone more yeah. uh, or less Nicholas, cynical.
0: Nicholas Sparks
1: leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard book to recommend, but I could see the argument. I could definitely see the argument that it, like, glorifies or romanticizes, like, alcoholism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. And again, you know, very graphic, but definitely people I think would enjoy this book. It's not a very lengthy read, but it will it will absolutely kind of stick in your mind. And it's a great companion to the movie. Um, there's a ton of ton of dialogue when I was reading it and remembering the movie. I'm like, OK, that is just word for word. Nice. Um, uh, there's a really crazy scene in the movie and it's in the book, too, when he's like when he gets that severance check. Ben like he goes to the bank and he's just shaking so much that he can't sign his name. And he has to mm-hmm. like go to the bar and then come back. It's, it's right. like a really wow. vivid scene. Um, uh, but as far as the movie, like cinematography is really awesome. It randomly in the, very, in the beginning, it randomly has, uh, a French Stewart in it <laughs> as a businessman number two, you know, squinting like he normally does. Funny. Uh, and one thing I wanted to ask you about, I saw that it was filmed in super 16 millimeter. Okay. Can you tell me exactly what does that mean? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, given that like, it's like the time of the production and like what, like Nicolas Cage is like young in that movie, but not like super young. Right. Is it like sort of like the beginning of his career? Anyway, sort of. film filmed in super 16, basically in some ways, Means like it was a more independent film than it was like, like okay like so like a movie like Jaws that was like a blockbuster or like most of like your favorite wide release films would have been would be filmed in thirty five millimeter which is like the that's the size of camera of film that your like parents were loading into the like still camera when you were a kid like that's thirty five wow. millimeter sixteen millimeter is like half of that. Width, and it was sort of like a revolution in the film world of like hey we made all these cameras that are 16 millimeters so like that the medium can be like more accessible so like in today's world it's like oh like digital cameras became good enough so people can be like independent filmmakers with not that much money so that would be like the first version of that and probably when and probably when leaving las vegas came out that was probably like a thing of like oh these were this was like a smaller production but it has you know real actors and stuff like that but it's like 16 millimeters just like a different form and now it's like flipped on its head like now a more serious indie movie would be shooting on film because film is more of like a like a luxury now. It's very beautiful, yeah. but it's like very expensive. So if you were shooting on 16 now, it would be like, "Whoa, you're shooting on 16. Like that's so exciting."
1: Nice. Um well, it, yeah, the yeah, movie looks great mean. though.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the right hands, it just has like a different feel um but can still be like amazingly. There's tons of movies that are shot on 16 that are just gorgeous, so
1: nice. Thanks for that. Um yeah. See, listen to SBR, You learn something. Uh, learn, yeah, learn something new. So <laughs> I got a one-star <laughs> review here. Uh, Heather says, "I wish I could give this a negative ten rating. The saddest, most depressing book ever. Really awful."
0: <laughs> Why are people and... turning to to literature to like you know? I've never I've never <laughs> like wanted a literary experience from a master writer and been like, "Well, I hope it's you know, singing in the rain." <laughs>
1: yeah i mean most realistic or you know books drawn from someone's experience are gonna be sad in some way but uh i mean this one it's it's probably outside of most people's experience and if if it is your experience it's probably you know tied to some very bad memories or you know uh, family members or any any sort of stuff like that so i i could see people like i said i i don't know who to recommend this to but um Mm -hmm. If it sounds like anything you might like, then yeah, I'd say give it a try. So yeah, Leaving Las Vegas by John O'Brien. He's got a few other books too. All right. uh, So thanks everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can catch us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, You can also hit us up on Twitter at SBR the podcast or send us your comments, suggestions, corrections, or whatever you got at uh, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.